Merry Christmas everyone and welcome to our very first edition of the podcast in the 19th century. Coming to you today from a rather wild and windswept southwest coast of Victoria on Gadamanud country along the Great Ocean Road in Australia. Since it is Christmas morning, I've decided to devote our inaugural podcast to Christmas in the 19th century. In fact, Christmas as we know it is a Western holiday and religious festivity with tinsel and holly, a pine tree laden with lights and glittering ornaments, stacked with presents underneath its branches, choirs singing hymns such as Silent Night, a jolly Santa Claus on his sleigh pulled by reindeer, and the sending of cards all over the world. These things really began to take form in the 19th century. Of course, the acknowledgement of the birth of Christ and the three kings bringing gifts celebrated on the 12th night of Christmas, also known in many cultures as the Epiphany on January the 6th, has been a part of Christian rituals since about the 4th century, when the Roman Catholic Church set in stone the official birth date of baby Jesus as the 25th of December. But the form of the celebration, as described in Anglo-American cinema classics such as Love Actually, did not really take place until the 19th century. Indeed, it really is quite a recent phenomenon. This morning we're going to take a look at the very small steps along the way that have brought you the Christmas tradition that you are enjoying today. I must admit today's episode is a bit Anglo-centric, but that is because Queen Victoria in the um, mid to late 1800s played a significant role in the culturation of the Christmas tradition. So let's begin with Christmas carols because in many ways songs and the sharing of music helped to spread the craze for Christmas far and wide. Christmas carols really do represent the beginning of the tradition. Originally sung throughout all four seasons, it was the carols sung to celebrate the winter solstice in Europe on around the 22nd of December that endured and were adopted into the celebration of Christ's birth. Their popularity ebbed and flowed, but in 1223, St. Francis of Assisi sealed the deal for Christian Christmas celebrations when he began to stage nativity plays set to canticles in Assisi. These were song cycles that told the stories of Christ's birth. If you can just imagine that beautiful little hilltop town in Assisi in Umbria in the early 13th century with its townsfolk congregating to witness their monk and friend St Francis bring to life the Holy Gospel. And then travelling minstrels would move throughout Europe bringing these carols to people everywhere. But it was in the 19th century that composing and performing a new catalogue of Christmas carols really began to take off like wildfire. The words of the famous carol Silent Night were written by the Austrian priest Joseph Moer in 1816 and in 1818 his organist Franz Gruber hurriedly composed the music for it on the Christmas Eve of 1818 because apparently the church organ had broken. It was first performed in the St. Nicholas Church in Oberndorf in Salzburg, Austria, where Gruber had set the, set the music to guitar and voice. The church was washed away in a flood, but is now commemorated by the dearest little chapel called the Silent Night Chapel. I have this wonderful image in my mind of a stressed and frantic Father Moa preparing for midnight mass without an organ and beseeching Hans Gruber to please come up with the music in time for the congregation to arrive. Of course, it was originally written in German, but in, as the passion for Christmas celebrations increased in Great Britain, thanks to Queen Victoria's German husband, Prince Albert, 
Um, it was translated into English by the British hymn writer Emily Elliott in 1858, and since then it has been translated into over a hundred languages. Indeed, the carol has become a portal to Christmas ever since Charles Dickens strategically published his classic Christmas blockbuster novella, A Christmas Carol, on the 17th of December, 1843. By Christmas Eve, that is really in record time, the book had sold over 5,000 copies. In his definitive analysis of the classic, Paul Davis refers to the book as a culture text because of its lasting legacy throughout the English-speaking world. Other critics, such as Philip Collins, declared that Dickens' status as the author of Christmas is unassailable. Indeed, one could be forgiven for mistaking the author as the very inventor of Christmas. While that is not, of course, technically true, without a doubt, he certainly put form to the tradition and gave it a certain perennial longevity. Dickens had already wet the public's appetite for Christmas stories when he wrote the good-humoured Christmas chapter in December 1836 as part of his first serialised novel, The Pickwick Papers. But it was a Christmas carol that really changed the game for Christmas. Dickens embroidered into the narrative the transformational power of benevolence, charity and kindness to those in greater need than ourselves, which became a favourite theme of the Victorians in Britain and throughout the British Empire. More importantly, though, he accentuated this sense of personal reckoning that Christmas brings through the contemplation of our past, present and future, which come to his readers in the very vivid form of the Christmas ghosts that appear before Ebenezer Scrooge, the main character. This is a time for us to weigh up where we have come from and where we ought to be going, hence the adaptation of the idea of New Year's resolutions and the inevitable dissolution of our resolve to keep them. This is alluded to in the book's original title. Originally it was called A Christmas Carol, full stop, in prose, full stop, being a ghost story of Christmas. As Professor Michael Slater sums it up in his introduction to the Penguin edition of the book that I have here at home, Dickens often refers to people who have suffered personal sorrow, wrongs and misfortunes, which this great anniversary occasion must inevitably bring to mind. And I'm sure all of us are doing a little bit of that bringing to mind of things we wish may be a little bit different. Now, quite possibly the idea of Christmas was first enshrined in poetry as much as in song. Publishing and reading poetry were enormously popular and indeed profitable in the 19th century. While authorship is a moot point, um, it is quite likely that the New York-born classic scholar, poet and Columbia University graduate Clement Clark Moore wrote a little poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas. We all know it, and here are the first few lines we can all recite off by heart. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads.' The origin of the poem is intriguing because it was first published anonymously in the New York Sentinel on the 23rd of December 1823, which actually happens to be my birthday. Um, now, Moore eventually claimed authorship once it had become popular, but I do wonder, I wonder about this. 
Could it be, in fact, that it may have been written by a woman? And I'm thinking of Virginia Woolf's great line from A Room of One's Own, where she says, for most of history, Anonymous was a woman. Anyway, um, that has not been postulated yet, but I think there's room for more investigation in this. Later in the century, though, the poem was very ably illustrated by the German-born American political satirist Thomas Nast in Harper's Weekly. Between Moore's catchy description of a gift-laden Santa Claus leaving presents for children all over the world and Nast's joyful illustrations, the custom of giving, gift-giving at Christmas was now enshrined in the festivities and traditions and consumption of Christmas. It is one of those delightful contradictions of the era that the satirist or the artist who immortalised generosity and good cheer at Christmas also was one of America's most powerful political cartoonists. Nass' political pen was sharp and like a vivisector, he could bring down his subject with a stroke of a pen. The great Civil War general Ulysses Grant suggested that Nast, in fact, brought the Civil War to its close through his cartoons one of which showed a Merry Father Christmas with stars on his coat and stripes on his pants handing out presents to Confederate soldiers while holding a puppet with a noose around its neck, clearly an effigy of the Confederate President Jefferson Davies. Nass' depictions of Santa Claus were regular features in Harper's Weekly, and he mobilised the jolly image of a kindly fat Santa to illustrate his views as Republican and abolitionist and also as a wildlife conservationist. Although he split with Harper's when the management changed, in 1889 he collated his Christmas drawings into a book called Christmas Drawings for the Human Race. And within its pages, he immortalised our image of Santa Claus as the jolly man with a white beard in a fur-trimmed red suit, sliding down chimneys and handing out presents to children. And all of this is in the 19th century. Professional painters also began to depict Christmassy scenes in the works they would send into the inaugural Royal Academy exhibitions in London, including one evocation of the Christmas feast and the bestowal of benevolence and elms on all quarters of society. Charles Dickens' great friend, the artist and Royal Academician Daniel MacLeese, painted a scene inspired by Walter Scott's 1808 poem, Marmion, which describes in detail the festivities celebrated at Christmas at the Duke of Sutherland's Mertoon House on the River Tweed near the Scottish border. MacLeese paints a large-scale interior scene called Merry Christmas in the Baron's Hall, which included over a hundred figures at least. It was exhibited widely in, in, in its time, including at the 1838 Royal Academy and then it was sent over to Paris for the 1855 Exposition Universelle, before eventually winding up in the National Gallery of Ireland in 1872, where it is to this day. I think this painting could be one of the earliest Christmas paintings on such scale, depicting a resplendent Christmas feast being enjoyed by not only the Baron and his family, but all of his retinue and staff and tenant farmers. Indeed, the whole village seems to be invited. In the work, the tables are so heavily laden with roasted meats and delicacies, with revellers pouring goblets of wine to the point of overflow, fruits piled up and minstrels singing Christmas carols. The painting is so full of life that one can almost smell the feast and hear the music played, while the guests revel in holiday excess. MacLeese also includes a very interesting addition. 
I think it could be the first representation of a guest dressed up as Santa Claus. He even included a description of this in the poem about the work that MacLeese penned. He writes, First Father Christmas, ivy crowned, with false beard white and true paunch round. But I think it's probably the Scandinavian artists who really own the tradition of the Christmas painting. Carl Larsen is known to so many people around the world. And he painted many Christmas scenes, including the wonderful Feast of St. Lucy, showing a young girl with a garland of candles around her head in commemoration of the young girl who took bread and alms to the Christians locked up in the Roman catacombs in the first century. It's now a powerful metaphor for the bringing of light into the world. The St. Lucy procession is one of the most beautiful sights to behold in Sweden on the evening of the 13th of December every year. Swedish artist Carl Larsson made some of the most memorable drawings and watercolours of family Christmases. His family appeared in most of them, from his seven children, the Larsson kitchen and his wife lighting the Christmas tree. But perhaps my favourite Scandinavian Christmas painting is the one by the Danish artist Viggo Johansson who was one of the Skagen painters of Denmark. In 1891, he painted a work called Glad Jul, or Happy Christmas, now in the Hirschsprung collection in Copenhagen. The Christmas tree really is the centre of the composition, and the light from its candles the only light in the room. A family led by their mother dance around the tree, staring up at the glorious refracted light of an enormous fir tree. It is truly one of the loveliest images of Christmas I can think of. Johansson emphasises one of the great Christmas traditions that became a staple of 19th century Christmas, the selection of a fir tree, the long trek home with it, and the ultimate pleasure of decorating that tree with the family. Indeed, the German tradition of bringing a freshly cut tree into the house to celebrate Yuletide took on a whole new transnational dimension in the 19th century. Originally the domain of Protestant traditions in Latvia and Germany, it became increasingly popular in the mid-19th century, although it was resisted by the Roman Catholic Church. The first Christmas tree in Copenhagen was lit in New King Street in 1811, suggesting a, a unifying public function of bringing townspeople together to celebrate. While Queen Charlotte, the British King George III's German wife, installed the first Christmas tree for the British royal family, the custom firmly cemented itself into the British culture the moment that Prince Albert imported spruce firs from Coburg, his hometown, and installed one on Christmas Eve of 1840, and together with his Queen and their children, they decorated it with candles and ornaments. The British press went crazy for this, and they began to illustrate the custom of the royal family to decorate the tree and lay presents at its base. Alison Barnes in the History Today website tells us that popular papers such as the Illustrated London News, Casals Magazine and The Graphic began to minutely describe the royal Christmas trees every year from 1845 until the late 1850s. There's a beautiful coloured engraving from 1848 that was circulated depicting Prince Albert and the tree he brought into Buckingham Palace that year. Queen Victoria is shown as a young mother with all her royal princes and princesses gathering around a spectacular tree festooned with lights and decorations with a delighted Prince Albert looking on. From then on, the installation of the Christmas tree was no longer an aristocratic custom in Britain, but a commonly held practice throughout the British Empire.
The author and woman's reformist Harriet Martineau believed that she was present to witness the very uh, introduction of the Christmas tree to the American tradition when she wrote in her journal about her visit to a German-American family called the Follens. She writes, I was present at the introduction into the new country of the spectacle of the German Christmas tree. Much later in the 1880s, the first electric Christmas tree lights became available, but on account of the cost, most people tended to use candles to light their trees, which must have led to any number of um, family house fires I, I wonder about. And then, of course, where would we be at Christmas without the traditional Christmas dinner? And when we sit down to this, most of the fare atop the table was largely curated during the 19th century. The description of the Cratchit's Christmas dinner in Dickens' A Christmas Carol, including the roasted goose and Christmas pudding, tells of a most comforting tale of special treats and ceremony, but really not conspicuous indulgence or decadence. It's all very wholesome. Just consider Dickens' description of their Christmas pudding with its fascinating allusions to laundry and home cooking. He writes, Hello! A great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed by smiling proudly with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quarter of ignited brandy, and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Christmas also brought about its own seasonal fashions for the 19th century women and children. Jewel-like colours such as red and green were perpetually popular throughout the era, as were fur-trimmed capes and coats with hoods, Christmas balls became a popular fixture on the social scene if you were wealthy enough to enjoy such extravagance. The pre-Raphaelite painters would frequently paint women in emerald green dresses harking back to an age of chivalry in the time of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. In fact, women reformists often wore rich green dresses and the colour also represented the aesthetic movement. Holly became a great symbol of Christmas with its bunched red berries and deep green shiny leaves formed in the most delightful shape so easily adapted to jewellery and other personal decorations. And finally, what would Christmas be without the sending of Christmas cards, although now these are almost exclusively electronic? The Christmas card was another 19th century invention, the popularity of which was contemporaneous with the improvements to printing technology during the period. The painter John Calcott Horsley was commissioned to design the first printed Christmas card for the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum, Sir Henry Cole, in 1843. Cole was a very busy man and could not possibly write personally to all of his family and friends and business acquaintances. So he came up with the idea of a universal card depicting three generations of his family raising a toast to the recipient of that card. It also contained a blank space to fill in the name of the recipient and the sender. It was very efficient and highly charming personal touch. It'll be one that Cole did print a thousand times. It is really such a beautiful image and well worth looking up. And on it, it says, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Published at Summersley's Home Treasury Office, Old Bond Street, London. 
Now I think I can hear the beginnings of my own family's Christmas feast, the rustling of wrapping paper and the stirring of the house for Christmas morning, the dogs getting a bit agitated, so I had better take my leave until our next episode of In the 19th Century later in January 2021. To quote from a visit from St Nicholas, whoever it was who wrote it, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Thank you. Well, I also thought I should share with you um, some information about that stunning choral music we heard at the beginning. It was, of course, the choir of King's College, Cambridge, performing Silent Night. Um, it's a 2009 arrangement by Stephen Clobery, and you may find it on YouTube, but also um, on a fabulous album called Four Carols. Um, with choral music of David Wilcox and works by Clobry, Leger, Rutter and Jonathan Wilcox. Um, the other thing that just occurred to me actually is that um, at King's College in the chapel um, is one of the most magnificent works of art about Christmas. In fact, it is Peter Paul Rubens' Adoration of the Magi from 1632 to 34. Um, it is installed as an altarpiece in the King's College Chapel and it really is extraordinary. And I can only encourage you if you happen to be wandering around the streets of Cambridge to um, buy a ticket to, to go into the chapel and just stand before it and contemplate this work. It really is beautiful. And if you do happen to be there in December, I'm sure you will probably also have the opportunity to hear their remarkable choir performing Silent Night. And that is all for me now, and I look forward to meeting you again very soon when we have our next um, In the 19th Century podcast.